Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you just joined us during worship time, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. For those of you that are here in the sanctuary, I'm glad you're here as well. Welcome. And uh, hey, uh, what a beautiful day it is today. A little hot and muggy here in Minnesota. In fact, we got a pretty bad storm, I guess, heading our way. And uh, we're very thankful for air conditioners and dehumidifiers right now because it's going to be getting pretty sticky the next few days. But I don't know where you're at watching this, but wherever you are, I pray that you're blessed this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as we're going our way, making our way through uh, 2 Corinthians. So if you would like to go ahead and turn your Bibles there. And I'm going to read through the passage of Scripture and then we're going to take a look at it. Chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I did not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation, in all tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were, uh, uh, but we were troubled on every side. Con uh, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all these things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. This chapter in Paul's second letter, or the second letter I should say to the Corinthians, this chapter is a very personal letter. Paul is really uh, pouring out his heart. He's explaining what was going on when he sent out his original letter. We'll talk about that in a little bit. What's interesting is the very uh, beginning of this chapter, verse 1, it, it really fits with chapter 6 that we looked at last week. Uh, you know, chapter and verse was not is not necessarily inspired by, by God. It was added later by translators. Um, and this is one case where it's like, I wonder if, why they put it there, but it's there. So we're going to look at that. So chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, be uh, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, therefore, having these promises, well, what promises is Paul referring to? He's referring to the promises that were mentioned in the end of chapter 6 in verses 17 and 18. I want to read verses 14 to you to kind of give a, pick up a context. 
Paul says this in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part as a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the promises we're encouraged in chapter 6, the end there, uh, to separate from those things that are evil that are mentioned here in verses 14 through 16. But, you know, our life is not just a separation from, but it's a separation to the Lord God. And so the promises there in verses 16 and 18, what's the promises? The promise begins with, I will dwell with them, excuse me, I will dwell in them and walk among them. God's presence in our daily lives. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is identification. He's like, wants to identify with us and, uh, and have a relationship with us. He says, I will receive you. That means acceptance and favor. And then he says, I will be a father to you. You picture, you know, we just celebrated Father's uh, Day last week. You think about what a godly father is. It's someone who provides protection. God says, I want to be a father to you. I want to provide that protection that a father would provide for his children. A father provides, you know, whatever children need. He wants to provide provision for you and I. A father leads and instructs. God says, I want to be your father. I want, I want to lead you. I want to, I want to show you what's the right way to live through this life so you can walk in victory in this life. And, of course, God sets an example. We look at his great love as an example for us. God says, be holy, for I am holy. So we have his example for us as a, as a father would. And then, of course, a father loves unconditionally. You know, and you guys know this. You fathers, you know this. Man, it doesn't matter what your children do. They may disappoint you. They may, they may get you angry. They may do things hurtful. But it doesn't change your love for them. Why? Because you're their father. They're your children. That's the relationship God is promising to his children, to you and I. And so what is the first thing that Paul brings up here in chapter 7 is responding to God's promise. And so he says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, we have to say something right out from the start. We can't cleanse ourselves in order to be saved. Nor can I wash away my shame and my guilt. There's nothing that I can do to take care of those things. We as believers, we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is not the cleansing that Paul is referring to. It's not the cleansing for salvation. It's not the cleansing to get rid of our shame and our guilt. That is done by Jesus Christ on the cross for you and I. But again, Paul is talking to believers He's not talking to unbelievers that have not made that step of faith. He's speaking to believers. So what is Paul referring to? He's referring to dealing with whatever defiles us as Christians. We've been saved. We've been washed. But as you and I know, as we go through our days, we can still become defiled by sin in our daily lives. And so he speaks of the defilement of the flesh and the spirit. What does it do? Well, it separates you and I from fellowship and communion and intimacy with the Lord. It keeps our prayer life from being effective. It also hinders our usefulness for service for him. Well, what is filthiness or defilement of the flesh? Well, basically it's those external things. 
you know, outward sins that are committed in the flesh. I could give a rattle off a few of them. Drunkenness, adultery, fornication, stealing, you know, things like these that, that we do outside, we do in the flesh. Those what he's talking about, those external sins. Well, then in that case, what is filthiness or defilement of the spirit? Well, those are the internal things. Maybe our impure thoughts or our motives or maybe we're angry or gossiping or jealous or causing strife between people or being critical and finding fault in everybody. Those are sins of the spirit. Now, I know in my life, and I'm sure in your life as well, it's very easy to appear clean on the outside. You know, hey, I'm not committing adultery. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting drunk. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And you can see that visibly. You can see that in my life. I'm not doing those things. But those sins of the spirit, it's, you don't see that necessarily. You might in some cases when it comes out and what people say or, or how they respond or do things. But it's really easy to keep all those sins of the flesh, you know, at bay in my life and yet harboring the sins of the spirit in my mind, you know, in my heart, having impure thoughts or whatever. Those, because they're less obvious, we're less motivated to deal with them or maybe even acknowledge that they're there. We're less motivated because why? Because we can hide it. Nobody can see it. Well, God sees our heart. And he wants you and I to be washed inside and out. So the next question is, well, how do we cleanse ourselves? I mean, what's the process? Well, here's the process. It's really simple. It's responding to God's word. Responding to God's word, that's all it is. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. James put it this way in chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's reading, looking into the perfect law of liberty, and continuing in it, that's doing it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So how do we cleanse ourselves? We get into God's word. As we read God's word, God's word speaks to our hearts. As it speaks to our hearts, we do what God's word convicts us of or encourages us or, or you know, guides us. That's what, it's responding to God's word. I mean, I could just read God's word all day and, and it won't do that much of an impact on me if I don't apply what I'm reading. And so that's how we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And then he says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So it's not just getting rid of what defiles us, but pursuing holiness. You know, perfecting holiness, okay, I'm going to perfect holiness in my life. That doesn't mean becoming perfect, by the way, becoming sinless. Because I got bad news for you. You and I will never be sinless this side of eternity. The other side of eternity, when we, when we get to heaven, that's another story. But in this life, we won't be sinless. What Paul is saying here by perfecting holiness, the word perfecting, it means to fulfill further or completely. In other words, it's present tense. It's this ongoing pursuing of holiness. So now with verse 2, and, and a lot of people think, you know, verse 2 is really what chapter 7 should start with because it's almost like Paul is changing gears here. But now in verse 2 through 7, Paul is going to reveal to the Corinthians, and this portion of Scripture is such a personal portion that Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians that he loves. This is the reality of Paul's love for the Corinthians. Verse 2. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I've said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul says to the Corinthians, open your hearts to us. Why? Because, he says, we have you in our hearts. He says, we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. To to corrupt someone means to lead someone into sin. And and in in some cases, maybe lead them into sin of false doctrine. Paul says, "I I never led you into anything. I never corrupted you. Now, the Judaizers... They were, they were men that would follow behind Paul and they would, they would corrupt the truth of the gospel, saying that you had to do certain things in order to be saved. It wasn't just Jesus. It was Jesus and, and in the case of the Judaizers, Jesus and circumcision, or Jesus and observing the Jewish feasts, or Jesus and observing the Jewish uh, holy days. Paul says, I never corrupted anyone. He says, we've not cheated anyone. And to cheat, it means to take advantage for the sake of gain. Paul wasn't in it for the money or for, for anything that he would, could get from the Corinthians. In fact, he called himself a drink offering. A drink offering is something that's just, it's just poured out. It's just consumed. That's the way Paul lived his life. And that's why Paul ministered to the Corinthians. And so as he's, as he's saying this to them, he says this, I did not say this to condemn and he's not trying to lay a guilt trip on these guys. He says, for I have said before that you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Well, what does it mean to have someone in your heart? Well, it means they're not just on your mind. You know, I think of a lot of people. I, I think of, you know, I see something on the news and I think of what I'm seeing and stuff. But that doesn't mean that that person's in my mind or in my heart. They're on my mind, but not in my heart. Paul says, you're not even, you're not only on my, on my mind, but you're in my heart. To have someone in your heart means that you're not only thinking about them, but you have room in your heart and in your emotions and in your love for them. You care about them. Paul says you're in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul loved the Corinthian believers so much that he was willing to die for them as well as to live for them. Now notice that Paul says die first. That strikes me. Why? Because if I was Paul and I was saying, I'd say, you know what, I, I want to, you're in my heart, I want to live for you, and if I have to die for you, then I'll die for you too. That's how much I love you. Paul doesn't say that. He says, to die for you. Why does he do that? Paul is heeding what Jesus said. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means dying to myself, dying to my wants, dying to my, my, you know, me first. It's dying to those things. In fact, in Paul's first letter, he says, man, I die daily. So this is, Paul says, man, I, I would die for you as well as live for you. You know, Adam Clark, he's a, a very uh, old commentator. He's not alive. That's how old he is. <laughs> but it's a common commentary from a long time ago. But I like what he says here. He says, from all appearance, there was never a church less worthy of an apostle's affections than this church. Uh, Excuse me, than this church was at this time. And yet, no one ever more beloved. Didn't matter how they treated Paul. Paul still loved them. His heart was towards them. And then he says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Paul loved the Corinthians so much that he was willing to say the hard things to them. And he did that in that letter that he wrote. What was the letter that he wrote? Well, uh, you know, Paul had ministered in Corinth and he was gone from Corinth and he received news that there were some issues going on in Corinth. There were people that were coming in that were stirring up the Corinthians against Paul. There was divisions in the church. 
that, that was some serious things going on. But one of the most serious things was that there was a man in the church in the fellowship that was in an immoral relationship. And the church, instead of saying, hey, you know, hey, brother, you're blowing it, man. You're sinning. They took pride in their tolerance of the sin and of the sinner. It's like, look at us. We're so accepting. Paul says, man, you guys are missing it. And so Paul, rather than just saying, okay, well, that's the Corinthians. That's the way they view things. Paul loved them so much, he was willing to say the hard things for them. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Listen, do you love someone enough to speak to the truth to them in love? Do you care enough about their lives that you're willing to confront them if need be? But again, to speak the truth in love. Let me ask you this on the flip side of this. Do you love someone enough to hear the truth to, you know, spoken to you by someone in love? Because it goes both ways. You know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, speaking about the last days. You know, we look at, we look at what's going on in, in our world today, and man, it seems like, it seems like, man, we are getting close. I mean, I, I personally feel that, looking at what's going on around them. But Jesus said one thing that was kind of interesting in Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. He says, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Now, when I read that, you know, in the context of that scripture, you know, I'm, I think he's talking about believers. Many will be offended about believers. You know, we're sharing the gospel, we're standing for righteousness, and we're like a thorn in the world's side. But it's interesting, Jesus didn't literally say that, although it's probably inferred. Jesus just says, and many will be offended, and will betray one another, and will hate one another. Look what's going on in our world today. People are offended by everything. And it's not just I'm offended, but they hate people that offend them. And so there's so much hate. So I'm, I, look at, I look at that scripture and I go, man, I think the Lord's coming back soon. Because he said that's what, that would mark the last days, that many will be offended. Well, I tell you what, many are offended right now, and it's getting worse. It's getting worse over and over and over again. Well, Paul loved the Corinthians enough that he didn't write them off. But he also, not only did he speak the truth to them, but he boasted to others about him. You know, about them, excuse me. You know, he didn't say, wow, man, those Corinthians, man, I tell you what, I poured my heart out to them. They're a bunch of losers, man. I'm going, I'm going to Ephesus. I'm going to minister there. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll be better there, you know. He boasted about the Corinthians. That's how much he loved them. Why? Well, think about 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul believed the best in the Corinthians that were acting the worst. And yet Paul, he boasted about them. He says, I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Why? He says, for indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Now, back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, um, Paul, he had written this epistle, the first epistle, uh, to the Corinthians, and then Paul had gone on to Troas, and he talks about it in, in uh, chapter 2. And he says, when I was at Troas, man, there was an open door of ministry. So in other words, man, things were hopping, things were happening there in Troas. But Paul, he couldn't rest. He, yeah, the ministry was going great there, but he was still thinking about the Corinthians, because he loved them and he cared for them so much. And so he had sent one of his pupils. It was a guy that was one of his disciples, so to speak, one of his students in ministry, Titus, a younger man. He sent Titus to go to Corinth with the mission of Titus, find out how they received that letter. How, you know, how are things going? Have they responded? And, and what way did they respond? Well, there in Troas... You know, Paul was hoping that by then uh, Titus would have came back, but Titus wasn't there. He was looking all over. Titus wasn't there. Ministry was happening, but he's like, man, I, I can't, I, my heart is with the Corinthians. And so he went on to Macedonia, presumably, I'm assuming, to, assume, to maybe that he would find Titus there. And so he gets to Macedonia, 
But when he gets to Macedonia, man, that's a different story there. Yeah, maybe an open door, but man, ministry is difficult. There's conflicts. Maybe there's persecution. There's just, there's all these external things that he was dealing with. But then in addition to that, there was these internal conflicts. And one of them, no doubt, was his fear and his concern about how the Corinthian church received his letter. You know, the interesting thing about Paul, and we'll, we'll get to that later, I think, in chapter 11, is that Paul, he doesn't just, he's not just concerned about the Corinthians, but he's, he's concerned about every church that he started. Can you imagine that? I mean, just the weight of all that. Man, it weighed heavy on Paul. You know, when I think about Paul, he wasn't the kind of guy that just clobbered people with scripture. Have you ever been around someone like that that likes to clobber with scriptures? You know, they just, they come up to you and uh, maybe they see something wrong in your life or they're wanting to correct you or whatever, and they'll just lay some scripture on you. They don't care how you receive it. Uh, they don't care about the aftermath. They're just, brah, here's the word of God and, and deal with it, you know, and then they walk on. And uh, Paul wasn't like that way. Paul wasn't like that. He genuinely loved them and he wrote to them out of deep love and concern for them. And so here he's in Macedonia, and man, he's just, things are really tough there. But he says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus showed up there. God comforted us by bringing Titus. Now remember, Titus was a student. He was a disciple of Paul. You know, it wasn't like God comforted us by bringing James, one of the pillars of the church, or, or Peter, one of, the, one of those main apostles. He, God comforted me by bringing one of the big guys, man, to encourage me in my ministry. No, he brought a student. He brought a follower, a younger man, to comfort Paul. You know, God sometimes uses unexpected things to comfort you and I, or unexpected people. I've been comforted by people that, you know, they've said things to me and, and I'm like, uh, you know, it's like, man, the Holy Spirit is using you right now, bro. And, you know, I don't want to tell them because I don't want their head to get big, but I'm like, sometimes it's like, wow, you just said something to me that just totally encouraged me. Don't miss those people that the Lord sends your way to comfort you. Don't miss that. Sometimes we can overlook them. God, they're insignificant. What can they offer to me? Don't overlook that because God uses the weak things. God uses the things that are nothing in this world. And don't miss the opportunity to be the one that God uses to comfort a brother or sister in the Lord, someone who's downcast. So not only was Paul comforted by seeing Titus, but man, Titus brought a good report about the believers in Corinth. Now, Paul, again, like I said, he's pouring out his, his, his heart to the Corinthians and in verse 8 here, Paul talks about how he, after he had sent this letter, and it's before he had heard from Titus, man, he was regretting sending the letter. Look at verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Paul regretted sending his epistle. Now, there may be some dis discussion over whether that's the, uh, another epistle that we don't have in the scriptures or it's 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians was an inspired scripture. I mean, it's, it's a book in our Bible. It's inspired scripture. His letter was inspired. His, he had apostolic authority as the apostle Paul to speak into someone's life. There was an issue that needed to be addressed. And so Paul addressed it. He spoke the truth to love in them, uh, spoke the truth in love to them. And yet he regretted sending an inspired letter. Can you imagine God has you write one of the books of the Bible and you write it and you go, man, I regret doing that. That's the way Paul felt. Why? Here's the deal. Paul was human. Paul was a man. You know, Paul interpreted that silence because he hadn't heard from Titus. He was thinking the worst. Oh, man, they're angry with me. They've totally rejected me. I, I, I imagine this has just blown up the church there, man. Listen, we're in a spiritual battle, and Satan loves to mess with your and my minds, and especially in ways like that. You know, I tell you what, this COVID thing has been difficult for me as a pastor. 
you know, uh, we have few people coming back now. Praise the Lord. And there's many that are listening. In fact, there's more people watching our program than actually came to church before. Praise God. I'm thankful for all of you. But I can tell you from my heart, sometimes silence, it's like, man, are, are they there? <laughs> you know, am I just preaching to the wind and nobody's listening? What, what's going on? And I, and I called a brother in the Lord and uh, it was, he, he encouraged me. You know, I was talking to him and, and I said, man, I, I'm, I just want to see how you guys are doing. You know, I haven't seen you in a while. And he said, well, we're, we see you every week. And, and, you know, that was just a little thing. You know, I don't see them, but they're seeing me. And that was enough to, okay, Lord, that was an encouragement for me. But it can be tough. Silence sometimes, and maybe it depends on your personality. You know, maybe, maybe the cup's half empty or the, you know, not. Some people say, well, you know, silence is, no news is good news, right? Well, if you're like me, sometimes no news is bad news, you know, because you always look at the negative side of things. Well, so Paul, he regretted sending the letter. But when Titus came and gave him the good news, man, he was rejoicing. He was rejoicing over the repentance. Look at verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, and what vindication, all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner." You know, Paul knew when he wrote that letter that it was a difficult letter. It was a difficult letter for Paul to write, but he knew he needed to do it. And he knew that it would be a difficult letter for the Corinthians to receive, to read. And Paul knew it would cause sorrow. But that sorrow produced the desired result, which was repentance. Now, sorrow over sin... And repentance from sin are, are two different things. Sometimes we kind of lump them together, but they're really, they're two different things. You think about Judas, one of the disciples. After Judas had betrayed Christ, Scripture tells us that he had, extre I mean, he was, had extreme grief and sorrow over his sin of betraying Christ. And in Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, Then Judas... His betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Man, he was sorry. He regretted what he did. The King James version of that, when I, when my, and the new King James says remorseful, the King James says he repented himself. So wait, wait, wait. Judas repented. That word repentance or repented himself in Matthew 27, verse 3, is meta... Oh, boy, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I'll slaughter it. But here's what it means. It means care afterwards. In other words, it's, it's, it'd be good to describe it as regret. You know, at the moment you don't care about it, but now you regret it. It says, on the part of man, it means little or nothing more than a selfish dread of the consequence of what one has done. So Judas was sorry for what he had done, for the consequence. He had regret, and what did he do? He hanged himself. He committed suicide. Peter, Peter also had extreme grief and sorrow over his sin of denying Christ. But he repented and changed his life. And you might be saying, wait a minute. Where in scriptures does it say that Peter repented? I don't see it. Where is it recorded? You know, it actually isn't recorded in scripture. I, at least I haven't been able to find it. If, if, you, if you know where it is, you can send me a text, not right now, please, but later on, you can send me an email. It, ex, it isn't written in there that Peter repented. Well, how do you know that he repented? 
That's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so on a resurrection morning, Peter's life started to change. When he, after he saw the resurrected Christ, man, things started to change in his life. But he wasn't repented at that point. In fact, in John chapter 21, after he had seen the risen Lord already, Peter, and he's probably feeling a lot of guilt, a lot of, you know, just ashamed of denying Christ, probably feeling, man, God could never use me, man. I've, I just, I can't believe what I did. He decides to go back fishing. That was his occupation. He was a fisherman. So he says to the guy, guys, man, I'm just going to go fishing. And about seven of the other disciples, are, they're named in there. They go, we'll go with you. So they went fishing. And they spent the whole night fishing, and they didn't catch anything. And you guys know the story. In the morning, there's a man on the side of the shore. And we find out in Scripture that it's Jesus. Jesus appears to them on the shore. And he tells them, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And they do that. And they bring in so many fish that their nets are tearing. Now, now again, these are professional fishermen. They fished all night. They didn't catch a thing. A guy says, hey, why don't you try the other side of your boat? <laughs> they fish. They go there, and there's all these fish. Well, Peter knew, man, this is a miracle. It's, that's the Lord. And so Peter jumps out of his boat and swims to shore. And then if you read that interaction in John's gospel, there's that famous interaction that Jesus has with Peter. And it starts out with, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? These, what, these disciples, these people, these fish? We don't really know. Simon, do Peter, do you love me more than these? Did Peter repent then? doesn't say that he repented. But you know what? You look at Peter's life, he never returns to fishing again. He never goes back to his old occupation. He follows Jesus. And on Pentecost Sunday... He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he becomes a completely different person from the man who denied Christ on the night of his crucifixion. Completely different person. His words of repentance are not recorded in Scripture, but you know what? You see the fruit of repentance in his life. Peter did repent, and it's evident in his life what he did. Like Judas, Peter I'm sure he felt regret, but it wasn't, you know, Judas felt regret, and then he hung himself. Peter undoubtedly felt the same kind of regret, but at that point, he forsook his old life, and it was a process. It wasn't an overnight thing with Peter. I'm, I'm thankful for that. It was a process, but that change began. He had a change of heart, and then, of course, the Holy Spirit completely transformed him. See, repentance is a change of direction. It's not an emotion. Sorrow is an emotion. You know, prisons are filled with people who are filled or full of sorrow. They have regrets. You know, after they've, after they've been caught and after they've pay, they're paying the consequences of their, of their crime or whatever they've done, I'm sure many of them are regretting what they did. But for many of them, that's the sorrow of the world. Why? Their sorrow that they are experiencing the consequences, but they don't do anything more beyond that. But there are people in prison, and I've met people going doing Bible studies in the county jail here. For some, their sorrow, it is, or it later becomes, because sometimes it's a process, it later becomes godly sorrow. Why? Because it produces a change of direction in their lives. You guys remember back in the 70s, I believe it was, the Son of Sam killer? You know, he was terrorizing New York City. Serial killer, shooting people. Everybody was afraid of the Son of Sam killer. David Berkowitz was his name. Well, he went to prison. He's still in prison. He's on death row. But he repented. He had a change. And now... He's still on death row. He's still paying the consequences of his crimes. But now he leads Bible studies in prison. He's teaching other, other uh, defendants, other, other prisoners. He, he's being used by the Lord. His life is completely transformed. 
So Paul says this, For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. These that Paul is describing here, it illustrates the characteristics of true repentance. He says, what diligence it produced in you. That word diligence means speed, to speed or to hasten. In other words, it's not, hey, you know what? I feel really bad. I'll change later. It was, I'm going to change right now. I think back to my own personal life. I, I, re I received, I grew up in a Christian home, knew about the Lord and everything. But, you know, at one point I, I, I prayed to receive Jesus Christ in my heart as my Lord and Savior as a young man, young, young man. Um, but then I, I walked away from the Lord. I rebelled and I got into things and I was, in, I was doing drugs and, you know, just living a lifestyle apart from Christ. But I came to a point where I repented of that. And, you know, so I'm, I'm driving in my car going across country. I'm feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I pull into a rest area and I get on my knees and I pray and ask Jesus Christ to forgive me and you know, come back into my life, Lord. Not that he had left, but I was in, you know, I completely had shut him off. And, and so I had this bag of dope on the next, on the car seat next to me. And uh, I didn't think I had a full six pack because I was drinking it. <laughs> I, had, I had beer in the car, right? Well, it's not like, okay, you know, I feel really bad about this. I'm going to change my direction. But you know what? This pot costs a lot of money, you know. I'm going to smoke it all. And when I'm done with this bag, man, then I'm going to repent. That, that's it. This is that bag's last bag. It wasn't that way. I mean, i got to do something right now. The first garbage can I saw, I dumped it all out there. See, that's what Paul is talking about, what diligence. It's not I'm going to change later. It's I'm going to do this now. That's, the, that's one of the marks of true repentance. There's no waiting. i got to take care of this right now. He says, what clearing of yourselves. Now, that word clearing means a plea. It means acknowledging the sin. Now, before Paul had written this letter to the Corinthians, they were proud of their tolerance of this man who was living in sin among them. You know, but now, now they're distancing themselves from him. Not because they hated him. They were not, you know, like you're this vile person. They were doing it for a reason, and Paul describes why to make him feel ashamed of what he's living, to make him feel like, hey, you know what, I'm not, this isn't good. I need to do something about it. So they distance themselves from them, a clearing of yourselves. Sometimes that's something we need to do. Maybe we need to walk away from whatever it is, that sin or that person or those things that we're participating. We just got to walk away from them. What clearing of yourselves? What indignation? That word indignation means anger or to be greatly afflicted. Now, it wasn't that they were angry. Now, we're, man, we hate this guy. We're angry at this guy. You know, we're never going to talk to this guy again. Um, they weren't angry against the person, but against the sin. And that's an important thing when you're repenting, man. You need to, you need to hate that sin because if, if you still kind of love that sin, man, that repentance, it's not going to be genuine. You need to hate the sin. And so what indignation? What fear? What, what do you mean, what fear? A fear of committing it again. I don't, want, I don't want to go down that path anymore. What vehement desire? A desire not to sin anymore in the same manner, a desire for godliness and purity. Now, I'm not the epitome of rep, uh, the, uh, the, the perfect picture of repentance, but I do remember when I, when I gave my heart back to the Lord, I was traveling. I was traveling to Minnesota, actually. And, and my first place to go to, my destination was Duluth, Minnesota. I pulled in there on a Sunday afternoon. I was in the military at the time. Signed into my duty station, got, you know, kind of, kind of settled in. And then I'm like, man, I got to find a church. It was Sunday evening. I went and I found a church that I'm driving around. I'd never been here before. I don't know where to go. We didn't have the internet, you know, back then. I'm driving around and I see a church and I go, hmm, I'll try that. I went in there and, uh, you know, it was, I, I, I had to do something. So it wasn't just getting rid of stuff, but now I got to pursue holiness. I got to get myself plugged in with people that are walking with the Lord that can encourage me. I'm not going to go to a bar and try to find some friends because why? Because I'm going to be back in the same place I was before. 
I gotta go. I've gotta. I've gotta. I've gotta pursue holiness. I gotta pursue things. So what with with vehement desire? What zeal? Zeal is really the word means heat. There's a church. There was a church, I should say. In Paul's time. That didn't have zeal. It's the church of Laodicea. And Jesus spoke, speaks to that church in the book of Revelation through the Apostle John. Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, this is what Jesus says to a, a church that's not zealous. He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So zeal, being hot, you know, being, I'm all in, you know, I'm, I'm committed, I'm, I'm pursuing this, I'm serious. That's the marks of true repentance. And then what vindication? Vindication means to execute justice or to do the right thing. Paul had instructed the Corinthians to remove that brother, the offending brother from the, from the fellowship. Not because we can't have him around us, he's this bad person, but it was to make him feel bad enough that he would repent. Paul says, you need to separate yourselves from them. And guess what? That's what they did. See, because repentance also is doing the right thing. And for them, the right thing was applying church discipline. For you and I, the right thing was, you know what, maybe I need to stop contact with that person completely. I just need to cut off contact with them because I know what it's going to do if I keep hanging out with this person or doing that, you know. Maybe it's putting away something. I, mean, I just got to get rid of this thing, destroying it, whatever it is. Doing the right thing. Well, the Corinthians did the right thing. And so Paul says, hey, in all these things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, they didn't write a letter back to Paul and say, Paul, we repent. And then Paul later finds out, yeah, this guy's still in the church. There's still, there's still the same issues going on. No, they exhibited the fruit of repentance by the way they turned from their sin. How do we know that Peter repented? Man, look at his life. Look at his life. And so now Paul, verse 12 here, gives them the reason for his earlier epistle. He says, therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. That's the gentleman we were talking about. Nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, whoever was the party that was offended. Or, you know, when we commit sin, sometimes we think, you know, nobody, it's just me. You know, nobody's affected. Well, sin affects people around us. It affects people around It affects our loved ones. And so Paul says, I didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care, uh, our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul wrote to the church that was tolerating the sin. He loved them enough to confront them and to rebuke them and to encourage them to do the right thing. Why did he, why did he write this to them? Because he understood... A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, this thing that they were tolerating, it was affecting the whole church. It was affecting their witness. It was affecting their effectiveness for service and their fellowship with Christ. And Paul knew it was detrimental to them. So that's why he wrote the letter to them. It, you know, the, the, the individual was kind of a side issue. It was the church that he was trying to minister to. And then finally, Paul closes this chapter speaking about how Titus refreshed him. Verse 13, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed but as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Paul was encouraged by Titus 
refreshed by Titus, not just by, by, because Titus showed up and he'd been waiting for him to hear from him, but because of the news. And Titus, being in ministry, was encouraged also, was comforted because he looked at the Corinthians and he saw a church, he saw a people that was willing to confront sin, acknowledge sin, and do something about it, that they literally repented. And so it was an encouragement to Titus. The writer of Hebrews says this, Obey those, I'm reading out of Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. John's third epistle, written to Gaius, Verses 3, he says, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I can totally identify with Paul here, being encouraged, and Titus being encouraged when they see people responding to the word of God. That encourages someone, anyone that's doing any kind of ministry, when you see fruit in people's lives, when you see tr lives being transformed, it's not just a pastor doing a Bible study, m worship ministry, any kind of ministry, you start seeing fruit. Man, it is so encouraging. And so I encourage you, repent all of you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. I just want to, I just... I totally can identify with, with Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Here's a guy that, you know, he just poured out his heart to them. He loved them. They repented. And now he's just so encouraged in the Lord. And you want to encourage those that are in ministry over you, man, walk with, let, let God's word transform your life. It, you know, that's, that's the biggest reward. Those that are impacted by the good news of the word, the gospel, and those that respond in obedience to God's word. That is, that's all that any pastor or ministry worship person asks for, is just to see fruit in people's lives. And I thank the Lord that I see fruit in so many of you, in fact, all of your lives here. I'm so thankful for that. I don't know about all of you that are watching, but uh, if you're part of another fellowship, hey, I just want to encourage you, man. Uh, Walk in obedience to the Lord. You will be a blessing to your pastor or your worship leader, ministry leader, or whatever. God bless you guys.